Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. If you turn your Bibles to Amos chapter 9, we finish up our study that really began with this concept is, are you ready to meet the Lord? Are you ready to meet the Lord? Because the Lord could come for his church at any moment of time. There's nothing left prophetically that would prevent the Lord from taking his church home tonight. And so the prophet Amos saw this coming day of the Lord, and in chapter 9, he gives us a picture of a few final thoughts that he wants to leave with the northern uh, tribes of Israel that were in rebellion to God. And there's a beautiful picture here because there are four spiritual truths. Three of them are pretty tough, and the fourth one is absolutely beautiful. Because mercy does indeed triumph over God's judgment. God loves us. God desires for us to be in heaven with him. He's made a way for us to be there. That way, his name is Jesus. He is the way and the truth and life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. But God also reminds us that he calls the shots. Amos is speaking now for the final time to the children of Israel, and he's reminding them of these truths. We'll be turning our attention to the book of James next week, and I'm pretty excited about that. It's one of the most, if not the most practical book in the entire Bible for our Christian living. But there's a truth in James that's found in chapter 2 that we'll give a little preview to, and it says, so speak and so do, in verse 12 as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. As believers, as God's people, and you can hearken the Israelites to God's chosen people at the time, they were unique in all of humankind. God had spoken to them by the prophets. He'd given them uh, some extra time, if you will, to, to speak into their lives through these incredible men that told them the truth about God's character in nature. And so in doing so, James reminds us, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. You remember that Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Same concept. God is a merciful God. And his mercy always triumphs over his judgment. But that does not mean that his judgment isn't coming. It doesn't mean that he won't make good on his promise to punish all unrighteousness. The whole story of Romans chapter 1 is that the wrath of God will be poured out one day on all unrighteousness. So if you exit this earth without Christ, the judgment you'll receive will be without mercy, because you didn't receive mercy while you were here. 
If you haven't accepted the grace of God, then you're going to have to face God with your own sins. And it's not going to go well. And so the Jewish people are now being given this picture of God's character that he changes not and that he is intolerant of our idolatry, of going the opposite direction that he tells us to go. And so would you join me? We'll pick up here in Amos chapter 1, this incredible truth that God desires for us to have his mercy. And in order for us to see it, he leaves this impending judgment in view before Amos closes out his prophecy to the children of Israel. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. I thank you personally for your mercy in my life. Lord, we as a church thank you for the collective mercies which are new every morning which you've poured out upon us. Lord, that you have not given us what we have earned or what we have really ask for at times with our sinful nature. But you've given us grace. You poured out upon us your unending love. And we pray as we study this final chapter that you'd speak to us as your church. Encourage us, strengthen us. Lord, I pray if there's anyone watching online that doesn't know you, someone here tonight that doesn't know you, they haven't cried out for your mercy and grace. They haven't asked for salvation that is rich and free. That tonight would be the time of salvation for them so that they could escape that coming judgment. Bless us, Lord, as we study your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a truth that I've shared with you many times, and I want to share it again because sometimes we think because God allows evil, especially evil in our world, As we look at our world tonight, there are so many things that are going on that are contrary to God's plan, God's design, God's desire. So many things that the Lord would not have happened were he fully in control of every man's heart, but he's not. Men's heart are darkened by sin, wicked by nature in Adam. And we act on those things. And without the redeeming blood of the Lamb... The world's condition is what you expect it to be. I have conversations fairly frequently about this whole concept of Christian nationalism, that we could just make this a Christian country. And while it's a noble idea, it's a grand goal, it'd be a wonderful thing to actually have happen, the fact of the matter is, that's not the truth. We do not live in a fully Christian nation. We have Christians in a nation, and praise God for the intercession, as we saw previously, of believers praying for our country, or it'd be worse. But the fact of the matter is, sin abounds in our country. Ungodliness is the rule of the day for many. Our laws are not fully just. The things that go on in our country do not represent a biblical worldview very often, frequently. We do not have a fully Christian government. We have never had a fully Christian government. We have Judeo-Christian principles. Those Judeo-Christian principles have guided us and gotten us thus far. And we have freedoms like no other nation. But we are in the same place as Israel. 
Israel was given the law. They were given special privilege. They were given a position that no other nation on earth had. Very similar to what we experience here in America. But Israel squandered what God had given them. Israel walked away from the truths that they could hold self-evident, that all men were created equal, endued by their creator with certain unalienable rights. You know, we quote the preamble of our declaration. We talk about our constitution, but all of our freedoms come from God. If we have any that are meaningful... But what are we doing with what we have? That was the question that Amos posed to Israel. And here's why I say this, because Galatians chapter 6, there in verses 6 through 10, we find a truth. A spiritual law is probably a better way to look at it. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. So it begins by saying there should be equality in the house of God between those being taught and those teaching. But do not be deceived, for God is not mocked whatsoever a man sows, that he shall also, or she shall also. It's not genderized here. In other words, in humankind, whatever you sow, you will also reap. For if he sows to his flesh, he'll reap of the flesh corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And so there's a contrast there. The choice is ours. For God's people, there has always been a choice to sow to the flesh or sow to the Spirit. We have our own will and there is God's will. And in a perfect world, God's will and our will align. Father, nevertheless, not my will, Jesus said, but your will be done. That's God's plan. But God's plan sometimes is not a reality, is it? Why? The world, your flesh, my flesh, our flesh, and the devil, who entices us to sin. And when sin has its perfect work, it kills. And so Paul goes on to write to the church at Galatia, let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so the principle is this. God's people are expected to sow to the Spirit. And when they don't, you can be sure that there will be a reaping of what you have sown. Now because God is merciful, because God is gracious, and because God is kind, he does not always extract that price immediately. He doesn't always give us the highest cost to the sins that we engage in. He doesn't always punish everything in the moment. He is patient. Matter of fact, Peter went on to say this way, he is unwilling that any should perish. He is long-suffering in that sense. 
So God in his wonderful mercy and grace is long-suffering, but he is not unforgetful. He, he doesn't forget. He, he remembers everything. And unless the blood of Christ is covering your sin, unless your transgressions are paid in full, there is a day of judgment coming. And when you turn away from God, you are in essence saying, okay, God, judge me by what I've sown. Give me what I have earned. And God has to, because he is perfectly just, say, okay, if that's what you want, then that's what I'll give you. And that is the picture we have here in chapter 9. And so we find first three negative admonitions. Verse 1 of Amos 9, And I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the doorposts. So where, where would the doorpost be if there's an altar involved? It would be the house of God, wouldn't it? It'd be the temple. The very door of the house of the Lord, that the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of them all, for I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away, and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. The Bible plainly declares that judgment begins with the house of God that he holds God's people most accountable for God's words. And for the children of Israel, they had forgotten that truth. Moses had taught it clearly, but the children of Israel had been getting away with sin for so long that they began to think that they were just going to simply be able to get away with it forever, that God had passed it over. And so Amos, seeing this, says, you better be careful because your false temples which there were many. You might remember Elijah was actually battling with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, which is very near the center of the, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom. There was another temple on the top of Mount Gerizim, which was actually uh, the counterfeit temple, if you will, to the one that was in Jerusalem. And it was there that the children of Israel had just kind of said, you know what, we'll worship Baal over here, and you can worship Yahweh over here, and you can worship Moloch over there, and just as long as you're doing something, God's going to accept it. And God's saying, no, I'm not missing any of this. I'm not okay with these false gods. The altar was supposed to be a place of sacrifice, a place of atonement. But God wouldn't accept what was being done there because it wasn't being done with a heart to be redeemed. It was just a way to pacify what they thought was a, a way for them to get by with their sin. This is one of the things I think the church still struggles with. It's like we go to church on Sunday, we go to church on Thursday, and on Friday we're back doing exactly what we know we're not supposed to do. And God's saying, in mercy... I'm going to continue to speak to you by the Holy Spirit. That's the wrong direction. But eventually God's going to say, were you actually mine? Were you truly redeemed? Did you plead the blood of my son over your sins? Or were you just playing religious games? The children of Israel were playing religious games. And this is a really dangerous thing to do. Because while God is merciful... 
He is not in any way, shape, or form fooled by our religiosity, our religious deeds, the things that we do that look religious. You you cannot cover up your sin with bumper stickers on your car. Your lofty prayers in front of other people don't hide the darkened heart. And while I mean no offense to anyone, I think the church needs to recognize that God sees everything. He knows why we do what we do. He knew what the children of Israel were doing. They were worshiping the false gods and then going to temple. They're like, well, I'll just cover my bases. I'll do both. No, God is a jealous God, and he's not willing to share you with anyone. And so he says to us, you might want to take heed because one day I'm going to strike at this stuff. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to have to. You know, sometimes we forget that God's justice and his judgment perfectly reside one with another with his grace and his mercy. In God's economy, he can be perfectly merciful, perfectly filled with grace, perfectly loving and perfectly kind and still judge our sin. How does he do that? He judges our sin in Christ Jesus. Amen? That that blood has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. But he still judged our sin. He did so on the back of his own son. If you haven't received that redeeming price in your account, then you have to pay for your own sin. That means God's going to one day strike you. Strike me. Fortunately, I know that my Redeemer lives, and one day I'll see him on this earth and see him face to face. Amen? Amen. Notice the second thing, I will search. I will search the hearts, in other words. Though they dig into hell, this is kind of poetic language, but it's giving you a picture that the prophet David actually said in the 139th Psalm, from there my hand will take them. If they climb up into heaven, from there I'll bring them down. And though they hide themselves on top of Carmel, so the same place that Elijah's going to fight the prophets of Baal, there, here's 850 prophets. And great Elijah is unafraid. And he fights in righteousness. It's an incredible battle. He says, if you go to the top of Mount... The reason Mount Carmel is mentioned is Mount Carmel was a place that Yahweh was worshipped and a place that Baal was worshipped. You've got to choose whether you're going to worship Yahweh or whether you're going to worship Baal. Because the offer is going to be there. If I go to the top of Carmel, from there I'll search and take them. And though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And they'll go into captivity before their enemies. And from there I'll command the sword, and I shall slay them. I'll set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. Now, it sounds gruesome, doesn't it? does to me. It's painting a picture that I can't run and hide from God. It doesn't matter where I go. It doesn't matter what I do. There are a lot of people that still believe you can run and hide from God. And if you look at the history of the Jewish people, remember the history of the Jewish people begins with God being good. 
Here's Abraham, this, this man who's from Ur of Chaldees. He's from the Fertile Crescent. He, he comes from the river Euphrates in modern-day Iraq. And he makes this journey of some 1,200 miles to this place that he knew not. And God protected him across the desert and across the wilderness and from animals. And he took his family and his wife, who by the time they got there were well advanced in years, so much so that when confronted with the promise, Abraham is like, there is no way in the world I'm going to be a father of multitude. And his wife starts laughing, so they call their son Isaac, which means laughter. God protected them. God shielded them. God watched over them. But in the face of adversity, Abraham enters into the land. We have this series of stories where even the great Abraham stumbled in his faith. Sarah surely stumbled in her faith. Their nephew Lot was messed up. Speaking to him. And so the picture is, Abraham, I know where you are. Lot, I know where you are. I know what's going on. You can't hide from me. You may be in a foreign land, but I am with you. And if I am with you, you're okay. But if I'm not with you, you're not okay. No matter where you are, if God's not with you, you're not okay. It doesn't matter if you live in Bel Air or Beverly Hills or you have your own private island someplace in the Seychelles. If God's not with you, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And unless you're made alive, the wrath of God dangles over your head. And for the children of Israel, he said, I want your hearts. I want you to consecrate yourself to me. I want you to walk with me. And when I tell you that this is the way you should go, I want you to go that way. And if you don't, there's a price to be paid for your rebellion. And no matter where you hide, I I will come find you. There's an old bumper sticker that used to be around in the 70s. Probably some of you saw it. It simply said, get right or get left. And basically it was saying, get right with Jesus or prepare to be left behind. You know, as crazy as that sounds, that's the truth. You have to get right with God or you're going to be left behind when the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ are raised. And while for some that may seem extreme, it's what the Bible declares. And it amazes me how much of the church has bought into this thing, well, you know, maybe I'll just hide out from God. I have friends, and I'm almost ashamed to admit this, but they're kind of like the Christian survivalist type people. Just like, well, you know, we bought this place up in Montana, and we'll just do whatever we, you know, we'll, you know, when, when the bad stuff happens, we'll just escape it all. And I go, why would you think you're going to be here during that time? Well, you know, I just think. And it's like, I don't care what you think. I care what the Bible says. You're a believer, you're not going to be here. And if you're an unbeliever, it doesn't matter where you are. You can't hide from God. But yet people try. There's a dude in Kansas. 
And you can actually look up this place. It's actually, you can just search the internet. Survival bunkers made out of an old ICBM missile silo. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not fond of confined spaces anyway. But for $1.5 million, you can buy your own personal bunker. That's half of one. If you want a whole floor to yourself, it's $3 million. And so when the Lord comes looking for judgment, you can just, you know, it's like, well, you can't find me. I'm sorry, it's not working. Your unrighteousness is going to be found. Notice what Amos saw. If you descend into hell, the same thing David saw in Psalm 139. If you descend into hell, if you go into the heights of heaven, you go into the bottom of the sea, it doesn't matter where you go. You go into the Cheyenne Missile Complex there in Cheyenne Mountain. That blast door can be moved with one hand, but it's designed to stop the impact, the explosion of a 30 megaton hydrogen bomb. Doesn't matter. You lock yourself in there. God still knows where you're at. Matter of fact, he can still tell how many hairs you have on your head. He knows you're coming and you're going. Doesn't matter how many guards you have. It's not going to save you. That's not the issue. The issue isn't saving us from ourselves. The issue is saving us from the wrath of God that is to come. Because it's still coming. You know, churches don't like to talk about the wrath of God. I personally don't think you can talk about the grace of God without talking about the wrath of God. Without the wrath of God, what do you save from? Well, you're saved from the wrath of God. That's the whole point. The whole point is you're dead in your trespasses and sins without Christ, but he has made you alive. And because you're made alive, you are no longer dead. You're not a walking dead person. You're a very alive person that one day is going to heaven. But if you haven't received that, and you think you can escape by some geographic location buried deep within the bowels of the earth, you are deceiving yourself. Our president was actually talking two days ago about this very complex. This is Mount Weather in Virginia. This is our presidential complex. It is the most heavily fortified and guarded place on the planet. There are over 900 people that work there full time. It contains rooms that lock down basically the entirety of our government. All of our military, our leaders are scattered out throughout the mountain. You can go in multiple different tunnels. It's supposed to be able to withstand repeated nuclear strikes. There's president's cat, there's the president, his cabinet, there's places for Congress. If we ever get struck by a nuclear weapon, that's where you find them. That's where they are. So I'm just informing the nations of the world, if you don't know, that's where they're at. It's amazing what you can Google. But there are signs all over that basically say, if you enter this place, you are under threat of death. We can shoot you. Now, some people would go, well, you know, the end comes. That's where I want to be. It's not going to save you. Being on the moon, being on Mars, being in a spaceship is not going to save you. Because that's not the problem. The problem is your heart. It's deceitfully wicked, and who can know it? 
And without the precious blood of the lamb, your heart stays darkened, and God knows where every heart is. Every heart. After the rapture and during the tribulation, all the concrete in the world will not save you from the wrath of the Lamb to come. They're in Revelation 6, and the kings of the earth, and great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountain. You know, that's weird. John wrote those words in a cave on the island of Patmos 2,000 years ago, and he said the great men, the mighty men, the commanders would hide themselves underground. Hmm. But it won't hide you from the wrath of the Lamb to come. Did John see Mount Weather? I don't know. But I know what the Bible says. And said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, who is able to stand. And the answer is, the only ones who will be able to stand are the ones that are coming back with the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb. They'll stand. Everyone else will bow. You won't have a choice. Amos saw this time. You don't want to be here on earth for that. Notice verse 5. The suddenness with which this happens. And so Amos is actually seeing two things. He's seeing what will happen under the Assyrian invasion. They're going to come, and it's going to be swift. And the ten tribes in the north will be taken captive and or wiped out and dispersed. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts. Now, I'm pretty sure the Assyrians couldn't do that. But they were God's hand to to make a point, to send a message. To remind the people of the world that when God says something, he means it. And all who dwell there mourn. And all of it shall swell like a river and subside like the river of Egypt. And he who builds his layers in the sky and has founded his strata in the earth. Can I share something with you? Mankind did not develop the science of geology until really the 1800s. And here's a prophet from the middle of the sticks writing 2,000, almost 700 years ago, who understood that the earth was layered, the stratas of the earth. It's another piece of scientific evidence that Amos could not possibly have known by his own investigation. But God shared with him by the Holy Spirit. And that his layers are in the sky. Interesting. Our atmosphere is in what? Layers. 
stratosphere, troposphere, ionosphere. It's in layers. Don't think Amos knew that. But God did. He who calls the waters of the sea and pours them out onto the face of the earth, the Lord is his name. And so God interjects the suddenness with which he controls his creation. Realm after realm of the heavens, layer after layer of the earth, the science of geology unknown to a goat herder from Tekoa. God says, let's let's see what happens when they figure this out in several millennia. Then he adds a reference to the flood, which, by the way, Jesus references the same flood, doesn't he? As does Peter. As it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be when the Son of Man comes. When the earth starts going sideways, God has taken note. Everything is going on in our, our world right now. The God of Colossians 1, the invisible God, firstborn over all the creation, the one that was by him all things were made, and for him was nothing made that was made if he didn't make it, is a way to paraphrase it. What God made, God controls. And in him, verse 17 says of Colossians 1, in him all things consist. In other words, he's holding the whole world together. In fact, he's holding the whole universe together. This was such an incredible truth. Wrap your head around this one. Most of you are familiar with Albert Einstein. If you're familiar with the origins of the universe, Einstein's theory of relativity, E equals mc squared, basically says that light is a constant and it travels at 186,000 roughly miles per second. Albert Einstein was actually afraid that if the creator exists, that he had found the proof of it. That because there had to be a moment in time when the universe began, he was troubled with the creation account. Basically, he understood that the Big Bang was God. But to my knowledge, he never acknowledged the creator. It just goes to show you how far off you can be. You can understand a lot of things and still not find the grace of God. You see, God was speaking. And he tells him, look, I'm going to sift all this one day. I'm going to put it through a sieve. I'm going to take and dump humankind through, and there's going to really be two sizes of People that will come out. There's going to be believers and unbelievers. Verse 7. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me? You know, one of the interesting things about the people in Ethiopia, the ancient kingdom of Aksum, part Egyptian, part Ethiopian, extends all the way down to the Horn of Africa, comprises a vast majority of the Sudan, Uganda, Ethiopia itself. 
a very large quantity of Jewish people live there and have for millennia. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel, says the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaphtor, the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom. He says, look, I, I know what's going on in these places that are about as remote at the time as one could possibly imagine. South Sudan is still remote. If you fly into Nairobi or you fly into Entebbe or you, you fly in anywhere into Africa, it doesn't take you very long to figure out that you have to get on a very small plane that can land on dirt to go anywhere else. It's still remote. People still make a living pastorally ranching cattle and sheep and goats. But it didn't stop God from knowing every single person that was walking around out there in the hills. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom. And I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. And so now he turns to the remnant. If you remember in our study in Isaiah, one of Isaiah's sons' name was Shir Yashub. A remnant remains. There would be a remnant that would remain of the house of Israel of Jacob's sons, and it would be Judah. Our King Jesus is of the tribe of Judah, the lineage of the great King David can be traced to Mary. For surely I will command, and I'll sift the house of Israel among all the nations, do you know that currently there are Jewish people living in at least 130 of the world's 196 nations? They're still scattered all over the globe. Even though many uh, have returned to Israel since its founding in 1948. As grain is sifted in a sieve, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground all sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say the calamity shall not overtake us nor confront us. There are still people that think they can escape God's justice and judgment. But they can't. God says the smallest grain won't fall to the ground. I know where everyone is. I've seen every heart. I know what all of you are doing. The children of the Ethiopians is an interesting phrase because the children of Israel prided themselves on being the children of Israel, but they had been so persistent in idolatry that God says, I can't really distinguish you between the children of Ethiopia and my chosen children. The Ethiopians were descendants of Ham, not Abraham. And so they were outside of God's perfect plan. 
But God was still going to be good to them. Still going to gather them together. And in fact, beginning in 1976, Israel announces a plan to bring back any Jewish person that wants to come to Israel. And they begin these Aliyah flights where they're bringing Ethiopian Jews back. And to this day, if you want to know what the Guinness Book of World Records says, is the most people ever crammed on a 747, it belongs to El Al Airlines, 1,033 people on one plane. Brought back to Israel. God kept tabs on where he scattered the Jewish people. Whether they were Sephardic Jews that had roamed the mountains of Iberia in Spain, whether they had spent their time in Europe, whether they were Russian or Ethiopian or Egyptian or American, God's made good on that promise. And when you travel to Israel today, you will see a very multicultural Jewish population. The time of sifting, I think, in the end, is still ahead of us. But what rose up then was a cry against the Jewish people, and beginning with the Assyrians, followed by the Babylonians, followed by the Romans, ultimately culminating, you might say, in our day and time, some 70 Five years ago, the Nazis. God has dealt harshly with the children of Israel for the rejection of Messiah. But he hasn't lost them. He still has his eye. He still knows where they are. He still knows those who are his. A.W. Tozer said one time when he was speaking to a group of pastors at a conference. He said, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. Interesting that that's where the children of Israel were. And it's interesting to me that sometimes people in our day and time have the exact same thoughts. It's like, I want salvation, but I actually want to worship something else. I want Jesus as Savior, but I'm not really interested in him being Lord. You don't get to pick and choose those parts. And to that end, whether we like it or not, or want to think about it or not, one day, the Lord is going to square up the accounts. And it's going to begin with the exit of the church. The trumpet of God. It's going to begin with the church being taken home to meet the Lord in the air. It'll be very much like the exodus from Egypt, if you will. It'll be very much like the Jewish people being brought back into the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God will deal with his own people and bring them home. But that leaves everybody else still right smack dab in God's view. That's why it's so important today that we don't miss the opportunity 
to know Christ personally. To waste no more time with our lives in idolatry. Wandering around this earth trying to figure out what we can do to kind of keep one foot with the Lord and another foot in the world. We're going to see in the book of James that that man is double-minded. Let him think that he'll receive nothing from the Lord. Now the merciful, very good news. Because the tribulation is coming. Verses 11 through 15. On that day or in that day, speaking of the very last day, verse 11 says, I will raise up the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. David's tabernacle is still fallen down, church. There's no temple on the temple mount. There's actually no evidence of Jewishness on the Temple Mount. It's devoid of the presence of Yahweh. There's a mosque that will hold almost 5,000 people on the southwest end. There's another mosque underground on the southeast end that will hold another 4,000 people. There's the Dome of the Rock, which is the third most holy place in Islam is on the Temple Mount. But God says, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages. The Bible is very clear that there will be a temple in the last days. And in fact, there will be one first constructed by the Antichrist. And he's going to make a treaty, a peace treaty with Israel and going to allow them to worship on the Temple Mount. Right now, that doesn't exist. So, fortunately for the whole world, these days are still ahead. Because that temple has been down now for the better part of 2,000 years. It fell in AD 70, destroyed by Flavius Titus. Raised to the ground. The stones are still at the base of the wall. You can see the Herodian stones that were toppled in a heap, covering the street where Jesus walked. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. In other words, there will be a temple on the Temple Mount that they may possess a remnant of Edom. Right now, the remnant of Edom possesses the Temple Mount. The Hashemite kingdom of Jordan actually controls the Temple Mount itself. That's who actually rules over it, the Grand Mufti, the reigning Islamic ruler in Jerusalem. But God says, one day I'm putting the temple back on the Temple Mount. And it'll reverse course. It'll no longer be governed by Jordan, which is the remnant of Edom. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does this thing, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grape, him who sows, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. Right now, the hills of Israel are primarily in conflict. One of the craziest things that just, it almost boggles the mind, that here's this place that represents so much of our history as Christians, that is a battleground 
There are police everywhere. There are military everywhere. There is a 35-foot-tall concrete wall that separates East Jerusalem from Jerusalem proper, topped with concertina wire, guard towers, military vehicles everywhere. That's not God's plan. God intends to restore the land that was promised to Abraham, a land flowing with milk and honey, a good land. The hills shall flow with it. Right now, if you travel south of Jerusalem, you head towards Bethlehem. It's a conflicted area. You need to be very careful where you drive. It's one of the reasons we actually don't go to Bethlehem when we're in Israel. It's just pretty filled with conflict. It's in the Palestinian territory. You go into East Jerusalem, you have to be careful where you go. It's an area of conflict. But it won't be forever. God's got a plan to send King Jesus back to put his feet on the Mount of Olives and split it in two. And then he'll be worshipped. As he should have been worshipped from day one. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They'll plant the vineyards and drink wine from them. They'll make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land that I have given them. The very promise of Joel that God would one day deal with the way the world has treated Israel. Deal with the rampant anti-Semitism that exists in our world says the Lord your God. Finally, the hut, the tabernacle, the booth, the Sukkot of Israel will turn into the temple and the Lord will be in his house. So when Jesus comes after the tribulation ensues and the second coming happens and the battle of Armageddon is undertaken at the very end of the age of grace, Israel's privileges will finally be restored. They'll be back in that place. It's it's crazy. Israel has the most insane form of government right now. It's like when you look at what's going on there, President, Prime Minister Netanyahu has been ousted. Now there's a new Prime Minister, but he doesn't have a coalition government. And so They've had four elections in the last two years to try and elect a a prime minister. They can't agree on who's going to govern the country. The Knesset, the same as we might call our Congress, really, it's it's the same basic principle. About 30% of the Knesset is Arabs, Palestinians primarily. And God's watching, he's going, man, this is a mess. But he has a plan. The UN doesn't have a plan. Can I just tell you? The UN does not have a plan. It's the weirdest thing in the world. You, you travel around, you go to the Golan Heights, and there's these UN forces that are all stationed on these mountaintops looking out at Syria. They don't have a plan. They couldn't stop five kids with slingshots. Seriously. It's like ridiculous. God has a plan. He's the defender of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And he's the defender of your soul if you know him. He's the one that loves you unconditionally because of who you are in Christ. Israel's prosperity one day will be completely restored. They're very far along their way right now. Their protection. Israel is the most advanced military force in the Middle East by a large measure. But one day they're going to have to face off with Russia. That's what Ezekiel 38 and 39 says. They're going to have to face an invasion from a 200 million man army from China. That's what your Bible says. Israel only has 9 million people total. And they're going to face the Chinese army and the Russian army, the Russian Air Force, the Chinese Air Force, the Russian Navy, the Chinese Navy. That's what your Bible says. They're going to face off against their Arab neighbors. Guess who armed their Arab neighbors? That would be us. Jordan flies the same F-15s, F-16s that the Israelis do, except the Israelis are getting the joint strike fighter, the F-35. But Israel's got one tool in their toolkit that most of the rest of the world doesn't have. And his name is Yahweh, Lord of hosts. They're not going anywhere. It may look grim. It may look like they're going to lose. It started looking like they were going to lose in 1948. And Israel has never lost a war since they went back into land. Why? Because God keeps his promises. He said so. It's true, the Antichrist will rise, the Magog invasion will happen, Russia will invade, Iran and her allies, absolutely. So there are some days ahead. But Paul, writing to the church at Rome, wrote these words in Romans 11, verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, lest you should have the same opinion that most of the world rulers have, which is Israel should give away more land. That land is God's land, and he gave it to Israel as a perpetual inheritance. It is theirs to possess, says the Lord. It's not for the UN to try and give away. It's not for the US to try and give away. It's not for the world court to try and give away. It is for no one to give away. It belongs to God. God gave it to his people. And so God says about that, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, there's a purpose to why Israel hasn't quite gotten there yet. God is waiting for the Gentile world, as many as will be saved, to be saved, for the gospel to go out to all the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he'll turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. Who is Amos speaking to? Jacob. Israel. What was the accusation? They were ungodly. Remains to this day, 
because God scattered the nation Israel. They're all over the planet, but they're slowly coming back into the land. For this is my covenant with them, that when I take away their sins, how does that happen? By faith in Jesus Christ and no other way. Didn't happen from the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It happens only because the precious blood of the Lamb has cleansed you from all unrighteousness. Amen? So this is a picture of salvation nationally for Israel. It's very clear. I will take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, their enemies for your sake. For whose sake? Yours and mine. The whole Gentile world has been blessed because God has forestalled the judgment of this earth while the times of the Gentiles exist so that we could be saved. Mind-boggling. But concerning the election, whose election? The Jewish people. They are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, (laughs) that's me, once I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but he hath made me alive. Amen? That's what God wants for everybody. It's what he wants for you tonight. And yet they've now obtained, here it is, mercy. God is merciful. Doesn't give us what we deserve. Through their disobedience, even so, also these now being disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they may also obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all of them. In other words, he's left them all in the same place. Watch what happens with the Gentile world. What happened? The gospel went forth. The church expanded and grew. Most of the world's nations have been reached with the truth of the gospel. The Bible's been translated into most of the world's languages. And then the end will come. Church, I believe we're getting closer and closer and closer. And that's not to be a date setter. That's not to be a doom and gloom guy. That's just to say the time has gotten shorter and shorter and shorter, not longer and longer and longer. God has just simply been merciful for a very long time. He's been gracious for a very long time. He's been long-suffering for a very long time. That's what long-suffering means. It means to suffer long. God's been that. I don't know how much longer he's going to suffer long. Sometimes people ask, what do you think is going to come back next year? He could come back tonight. The question isn't how long will he wait The question is, what are you doing with the time he's given you today? What are you doing with the time that you have to speak to your neighbors and to your friends and to your family? What are you doing with the hours that Jesus has given you to live on this earth? The children of Israel squandered much of theirs. And it's been very costly. But because salvation is a gift and it's available to anyone who will believe, I would believe the Lord has for you a a word to take to your families, a word for you to take to your friends. And that is, I don't know when Jesus is coming again. I just know that it could be today. Are you ready?
Are you ready to see him? That's how this story began, and it's how it ends. We're at the very end. Are you prepared to meet the Lord? That's the question for you tonight, too. And I believe for many, if not most, that the answer to that is, at least in a salvation sense, yes. But how about in an evangelism sense or a service sense? Or how about in the sense of who you are in Christ? Are you living your life day to day to the glory of the Lord? Are you living for the King? Not just because I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is with me no matter what men may say. He lives. And because he lives, I live. And because he lives, you can live. All you need to do is Invite him in so that you can have life. I'm going to have some pastors come forward and they'll be available for prayer. Maybe something on your heart, something on your mind. Maybe you need to commit your life to Christ tonight because you don't know him. And if he were to come tonight for the church, you would be left behind to face the wrath of God. The good news is you could still be saved, but it's going to cost you a lot more than it will tonight. Tonight, it will simply be a decision. You exchange your life for the life of Christ. All you got to do is ask. After the king comes, it's going to cost you your actual life to know Jesus. I would suggest you do it tonight. Father, we thank you for the gift of grace. Lord, I thank you that I'm your son. Lord, when I think that you, Jesus, came and died on that tree for me, I don't even have words to say that are adequate. There's there's no amount of thank yous that I could offer that would ever get the point across. But I do say thank you, Lord, for the salvation that I have. And I know that most of us would echo that. But I also believe that there are people here tonight that are steeped in idolatry. Lord, they're worshiping something besides you. I also believe that there are some either online or here in your house that don't know you. And God, they have no assurance that were you to come tonight that they would go with you. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convince of the gospel. And that tonight would be the day of salvation for them. That they would just simply commit their life to you and walk with you. And they'd be baptized on Saturday. Lord, repent and be baptized is that message. And so, Lord, we thank you for our salvation. Lord, I thank you for the riches that I have in Christ Jesus. That we have in Christ Jesus. Lord, make us into a powerful army in these last days. For your name's sake. Lord, don't let us worship false gods. Don't let us go to the mountaintops where the others go. Let us stand alone in prayer and stand alone in service and stand alone in evangelism. If we have to stand alone for you, Lord, then let us stand. As the Apostle Paul said, having therefore done all to stand, stand ye therefore. For you, Lord, help us to We thank you for this amazing prophet. We can't wait to meet him when we get to heaven. 
We look forward to our time studying the book of James next. Lord, thank you for your word. It is life to us. And indeed, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Thank you for allowing us to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.